The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. I love technology. But yes, the lights were going up and down in that last song. (laughs) We'll fix that for next week. Last week, we began by looking at Jesus' last public statement. Uh, We have more to go in the Gospel of John. We have many chapters and many more months to go. But this, this is the last public statement of Jesus. And what we saw was that the hour has come. Jesus' hour has come. The hour has come to fulfill what he came to accomplish. We looked at the fact that in the way that he's going to fulfill that was appropriately described as being glorified through glorification. But we saw that there's a paradox in what that glorification is going to look like. We, we saw that, you know, as Chesterton says, paradox is the heartbeat of the gospel. And the paradox we saw last week is that in order to be glorified, Christ was going to die. You see, as we're looking at this last public statement of Jesus, we're going to see these three things. We looked at the first last week, what his glorification actually was. That's the cross. Today, we're going to look at his mission of why he was sent. And then next week, we're going to look at his witness to the Father. All of these things, his glorification, his mission, witness, are focused towards building up our faith in Christ. And this is why in Jesus' last public statement, the last time he's going to approach the crowds, his goal, his desire is for them to know, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can trust me. What you've been looking for, who you've been waiting for is me. But before we get to this second kind of point that he's making his mission, I want us to go back to the very first words that are recorded of Jesus in this gospel. I said this last week, but when I'm looking at this last public statement, as we're nearing the end of the book, as Jesus is, you know, days away from, from the cross, I, I continually see all these echoes from back in the gospel, and I want us to return to the very first words that Jesus said in this gospel. Can you think of them? Can you think all the way back? months and months and months ago of what we looked at, the very first words? Well, we can find him in chapter 1 and verse 38. It was a conversation that Jesus started to have with his disciples. They weren't his disciples yet. They were following him. But I, I want to read you this section. It says, the next day after John was standing, John the Baptist, with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. Now, that was John the Baptist's, the reason he came. He was the last prophet. He was the last Old Testament prophet heralding Christ's interest. And when he sees Christ walking, he points to them and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And these two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They were like, oh, okay, John, well, you're here to, to uh, herald in the entrance of, of the, the Messiah, so I'm following him. And Jesus turned and saw them, this is verse 38, and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? You know, the question and answer time with Jesus often goes odd. It started odd, right? What are you seeking? Where are you staying? 
That doesn't exactly make sense. And one of the two, or, and they came to him and said, and he, Jesus, said to them, verse 39, come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. And it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I want to turn to this question for a minute. What are you seeking? It's an interesting question. Because at the root of this question, there is, there's this idea that the question is focusing towards a need. Jesus sees them longing for something. He knows that they're searching for something. That's why they're with John the Baptist. They were John the Baptist because they know, I need to get right with God. I'm going to follow this prophet. And now when he turns to Jesus, Jesus asks, what are you seeking? Or you could ask it another way, what do you want? What do you want from me? Why are you following me? Why have you detached yourself from John the Baptist and then come to me? Why are you following me? The question assumes that his disciples, these men, need something. They might need something that they don't even recognize yet. In my first job, I I worked at Jersey Mike's. I still, it took me years after I stopped working at Jersey Mike's to ever want to walk into another Jersey Mike's because of the smell. But in any first job, it's intimidating because you walk into your first job and you're like, "Ah, I don't know what to do. I was 16. I had never worked outside of, with, with fam, outside of working with family before, working with these strangers. I, you know, I hadn't really, didn't really eat at Jersey Mike's even before that. It was just, you know, it's a restaurant, so I'm going to work there. Well, I spent my first couple of days walking around intimidated because I didn't want them to know how much I didn't know. I didn't want them to know how kind of underwater I felt, how awkward I felt. And I was just like, I was constantly walking around like, I don't want to make a mistake. And so I'd have these moments when I'd walk in and, and, and interact with, with my managers or other people. And I would just ask questions of like, hey, what should I do now? Or how should I make this sandwich? Or how should I clean this? Or you told me to do this, but I have no idea what that is. And behind all of these questions was this fear the fear that they might realize that I have no idea what I'm doing. They might realize that I recognize I'm in need, I need something, and I'm just trying to cover up the fact that I need something. But then, every once in a while, I'd have a manager who'd walk up to me and be like, hey, what are you doing? What can I do for you? What's going on? And they came in this moment of need of like, hey, I see, I I can see that you're, you know, being, I have no idea what's going on. Let me help you. I kind of feel that same intentionality behind Jesus's question here. Like he sees that shame that they have of, I don't know what I'm looking for. He sees that fear that's inside of them as I know I need something outside of me. And he comes to them and says, okay, what are you seeking? And the question is really inquiring, what would you have me do? Now, if you fast forward to the end of the book, or the end of this, Jesus' public ministry. Jesus knows what these people are seeking. Jesus knows what they would have him do. Because the longing inside all of us is this need to be reconciled to our creator, to our holy God. Whether we even identify that that's a longing itself, we know something is wrong. I need help here. His disciples knew it. Jesus knew it. And Jesus came to accomplish that reconciliation. 
That was his mission. He came for that very purpose. So when he goes, what are you seeking? They didn't respond back and say salvation, but Jesus knew it's salvation. And that's why I'm here. If you fast forward to John 12, that's what this last public statement is declaring. That was my mission all along. Reconciliation with your creator. And that's what we're, we are going to get to see today from John 12, 27 through 36. Here's what we're going to see today. Just kind of put it in a thesis statement. The death of Christ is and always was the plan of God. The death of Christ is and always was the plan of God. We're going to expound upon that, but I love where verse 27 starts off this section. Because in the verse 27, we see this amazing example of Christ's humanity and divinity on display. Just read again verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now, this question that's being asked here, now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, is a rhetorical question. And yet it's followed by a loving statement. I say that this is a great example of his humanity and his divinity on full display because in his humanity, it is only natural for him to say, I am troubled right now. He knows what's coming. And it is only a natural, normal human experience to be troubled by the thought of an untimely death. And even more than that, an agonizing, painful death. We can look at other instances where Jesus is, is, is thinking about this future cross, like Luke 22 in the garden. And he says this, he, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I mean, clearly, when G it's this understanding when Jesus is thinking of his death, is thinking of the cross, there's this understanding that pain and agony are coming. So I says, my soul is troubled. It's completely natural. For, you know, if, if I were to describe your death as anything other than dying in your sleep at a very old age after living a good life, we would be troubled. I don't want that. But without diminishing his humanity, we see his divinity shine forth because he follows it up with, but for this purpose, I have come. Jesus knew when he asked, what are you seeking? He goes, you're seeking my death on the cross. Here's what this passage shows us. We're going to see kind of three things. If the statement was that the death of Christ, the cross was always the plan of God from the very beginning, we're going to see this in three ways. This is a very structured sermon for me, I know. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus willingly went to the cross. The second thing we're going to see is that the mission of Christ brings glory to God. And the third is that this was always God's plan. First thing, Jesus willingly went to the cross. People didn't understand this when they looked at Jesus on the cross, that he willingly went there. His disciples even struggled with this idea that he willingly went to the cross. Because again, on the humanity side, who would do that? 
That makes no earthly human sense for somebody to go to the cross. This is the question that rightly comes up when, when he's hanging on the cross. We can see again in Luke 23, when he's hanging on the cross, people are mocking him for being there. Says this in verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Right? Like, if you heard and watched and observed Jesus doing all of these miracles and, and, and breaking down all of the normal natural functions that we, we think about, like Lazarus, dead, shouldn't be raised from the grave, water shouldn't be turned into wine, all of these signs that we've even seen in the Gospel of John and, almost, and, 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 and all the more in, in the other Gospels, and you see Jesus hanging on the cross, everyone, everyone, Mary, Martha, his mom, all of these disciples, even the people that disagreed with him were saying, if you had that power, you would be able to get yourself off this cross. And yet what we see is that he wasn't hanging on the cross because he was powerless to get himself off of it. He was hanging on the cross because that was his plan. He was willingly enduring the cross. Turn to Romans 5 for a minute. Because... That makes no earthly sense to us. It blows our mind to think that somebody would willingly go to the cross for people that were even his enemies. This is what, as Paul is describing the glory of the gospel in Romans 5, he says this, Since therefore we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think back to that question. What are you seeking? They're seeking peace with God because of Christ. We have been justified by faith and we have that peace with God. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. For while we were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The cross didn't make sense to people because who in the world would die for their enemies? Who in the world would live or would, would, would go to the cross and die on the cross for people that weren't, in our minds, worth saving? That's why people are mocking him on the cross going, you've saved all these other people that didn't deserve it. You can't even save yourself. Yeah, what we see is that Christ willingly went to the cross. He willingly took that burden on. But why? Why did he do this? Why did he take this mission upon himself? Well, it's even more amazing. He took this mission because point two, to bring God glory. 
That's what we see in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. This is like a prayer-like address to God. Again, he's just think of it. He goes, my soul is troubled because I know the pain that's coming, but this is why I came. This is the purpose of why I came. Now, Father, glorify your name. Think for a minute. Think for a minute how you would approach this moment of sacrifice. Think for a minute if you were forced to have this moment of sacrifice. Gun to your head, got to do this. What would you want the response to be? Remember me for this. Put my name on a building for this. Think of me for this. We would want to take the credit for it, would we not? We, having this moment of sacrifice, would be like, well, at least my name is going to be remembered forever because I go through this sacrifice. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus willingly goes to the cross and doesn't say, remember me, glorify me, you know, praise me. Praise the Father. I don't know why this movie scene popped in my head this week, but it did, so I'm going to share it with you. It's kind of from a, not exactly a great movie from an actor standpoint, but the movie Troy, way back, Brad Pitt, that one. There's this scene at the very beginning, it's like the first time that you see Achilles, and he's being called to battle to fight some tall giant dude, and it's this little kid who has to come find him in his tent. And... He finds him in his tent and, and he, uh, you know, brings him to his horse and he puts him on the horse. And, and, and this little messenger boy asks this question. He goes, he, he says a statement. He says, I wouldn't want to fight him. Why are you going to fight him? He's a giant. Why, do you, why are you excited to go fight him? And Brad Pitt's character, Achilles, responds and goes, well, that's why no one will remember your name. Because you're not taking the risk to take this, you know, pride upon yourself. Well, obviously, what does Achilles heal? It's pride himself. But I think we're trained to think that what we do things to glorify our name, to build our kingdom, to give us credit. I mean, this is just a point of application that I've had for myself. I think we see, we see this in the church all the time. People doing good things not to glorify God, but to glorify ourselves, to build a name for ourselves, to build a kingdom for ourselves, to build a reputation for ourselves. Good sacrifices, good things, but we do that because the, the intention behind that is, I want to get the glory. Jesus is making the greatest sacrifice of all time. Jesus is God you know, humanity, divinity, God. He could say, this glorifies my name. But he goes, no, Father, glorify your name. I think this is the perfect, the perfect application of verse 25 that we looked at last week. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This, this statement of, Father, glorify your name indicates that the greatest display of glory, the climactic conclusion to the story of Christ is not anything other than God's glory. 
And yet we want to make it so many other things. The, the, I guess the, the, the official way you could say this is the greatest display of God's glory is seen in the substitutionary death of Christ upon the cross. I mean, think about that for a minute. When we look at the cross, we can see a lot of different things. We see the suffering of an innocent man. We can see the amazing love of our Savior. We can see the fulfillment of so many promises. And we see the promise of hope. But what is displayed above everything else is the glory of God. Christ came to earth, took on flesh, think Philippians 2 language, for the glory of God. That's why God in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. Looking at all of the promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, he goes, no, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there heard, heard it and said that it, said that it had thundered. And others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. The cross of God is the greatest display of God's glory, but it's also the greatest display of God's victory. Because keep reading and, and looking at how he answered. He goes, this voice was not for me. God, Jesus did not need to have God's glory proclaimed to him. He did, he did not need to be told the reason that you're here, the reason you're going through all these things is so that God's name can be glorified. He knew that. He recognized that. That's why he said, Father, glorify your name. He knew that we needed to see that. But look at how it continues. Now, after the cross, because of the cross, because your name is glorified, now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world is cast out. And when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Glory is seen in the preeminence and power. And Jesus declares that through the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. The judgment of this world is directly connected to the cross. I mean, think about that. What we see in the cross is the simultaneous glorification of Jesus and at the same time, the judgment of this world. Again, paradox, when we see the cross, we see an instrument of destruction. When God looks at the cross, he sees a king being crowned. He seems the judgment of the world being had. When, when God looks at the cross, he sees his glory magnified to the earth. It's this paradoxical glory because again, why in the world does life come from death only in God? When Satan looks at, at, at the cross, he sees his own judgment. He sees it, it's, it's over. This is why when Christ declares on the cross, it is finished, it is finished to the devil. This is him saying, listen, the ruler of this world has been cast out. I win. This is what is being said. But this leads us to point three. This was and always has been God's plan. At the center of this discussion, we're looking at today is the heart of the atonement. What I mean by the heart of the atonement is the heart behind why God sent Christ to the cross and why Christ went to the cross. There have been so many different views of the atonement. 
and so many different perspectives offered. So many different ways that we can see the death of Christ. One thinks that it was an afterthought of God. God tried the hardest to not make it where Christ had to go to the cross. He tried everything else. That's why we have all the Old Testament laws. That's, that's why life looked that way then. And, and the Old Testament didn't work out and Israel didn't work out. So I guess I have to send Christ. Others say that his hand was forced. His hand was forced because he's like, well, I must save. And so I guess the only way to save is to go to the cross. Others said that Christ was surprised by the mission. Like in his humanity, there was a moment when he was reading in the Old Testament or in some, you know, conversation, prayer time with God, that Christ was like, you sent me here for what? I have to do what? I didn't get a choice in the matter. I don't like this. Still more said that it was a plan that even Satan didn't see coming. That it was a mission that was covert in nature. While many have believed those ideas, I'm just going to say it, they're all wrong. Flat wrong. Jesus wasn't surprised by the cross. When he said, what are you seeking? He knew you're actually seeking the cross. Jesus took on flesh. He knew I'm taking on flesh so I can die. When God said in the garden, moments after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, I'm going to send somebody that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Think of these language. He knew that's my son. Born of a woman and yet born in the... In, 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 in the likeness of the first Adam, but is going to live the life that the first Adam could not live. This view of the atonement, this heart of the atonement is called penal substitution. I want to read kind of a, a lengthy quote because penal substitution, well, that's a very technical term, is a beautiful thing. Frankly, we celebrate it here every single Sunday. It says this, the doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us. The death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as a penalty for sin. This understanding of the cross of Christ stands at the very heart of the gospel. There is a captivating beauty in the sacrificial love of God who gave himself for his people. So it is this that first draws many believers to the Lord Jesus Christ and this that will draw us to him when he returns in, in the last day to vindicate his name and to welcome his people into his eternal kingdom. That the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, a shameful death, bearing our curse, enduring our pain, suffering the wrath of his own father in our place. His death has been the wellspring of hope of countless Christians throughout the ages. If you're looking to read more about this, you can find a great book it's called Pierce for Our Transgressions. That's where I got that from. The death of Christ was and has always been the very plan of God. We can actually prove it from this, from these statements. I, 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 I want to point out three wills that in 
that are included in this section here. These wills are a future tense meaning. This is what I will do. Each of these show the sure knowledge of that God is going to save. The first one we see is in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. And then the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. No questions asked. No, and I'm trying to glorify it. No, and I hope to glorify it. No, and maybe this is going to work. No, I will glorify my name. Second one, season 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out? I mean, just that finality. This is what's going to work. This is how Satan is going to be cast out. This is how God is going to win. I will win. And the third one is in 32. And I, when I've been lifted up from heaven, will draw all people to myself. I mean, just just hear that. God will glorify his name. He will do it by casting out the ruler of this world, Satan, and he will draw all people to himself. Just listen to the finality there, that heart there. This is the plan of God and it is going to be carried out exactly how God and Christ said that it would be carried out. There's no question around it. Jesus isn't crossing his fingers, hoping this is going to work. He's not going to the cross and saying, well, I hope that this displays my love for the world enough that they're gonna turn from their sinfulness and turn towards God. That's one of the other views of the atonement. That's ridiculous. No, this is him saying, this is how man is going to be saved because again verse 24 the paradoxical reality of the gospel life comes through death these people understood it these people got what Jesus was saying we can see that in in his response so the crowd answered him uh I mean this is like paradox You, you, you can see the confusion in the paradox here we've heard from the law that Christ remains forever You're using death language? You're using lifted up language? Like I wonder if they thought cross at this time. But lifted up like you're going to die? How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? And then I think it's like, okay, so if you're going to die, who is the son of man? We were following you thinking you were going to remain forever. I mean, think about like Peter's um, language where Jesus starts talking about his death. And Peter goes, hold up, Jesus. Let's think of another plan. Like pulls him off to the side. And what Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because my plan, my mission, the goal has always been the cross. So Jesus said to them, we've we've seen this a couple of times now. When people are questioning Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you here? What's this mission all about? He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk. While you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light. Again, think back to that I am statement. I I am the light. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What's Jesus doing in this last statement? He's, He's offering an invitation to them. Come all to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come all to me who are groping in the darkness to try to figure out how in the world we can make it in life. And I will make you sons of light. In this last statement, it's this invitation of stop trying to get it on your own power. Come to me. Just as we close, 
I want to return to the topic of the atonement. Because I think one of the reasons why there's so many different views of the atonement, one of the reasons why, if you look back in history, I mean, if you, if you just Google views of the atonement, it, you can really follow it chronologically as you kind of, there's, there's the ancient view and there's the Reformation view and there's the modern view and, and it kind of every century and every time period, people were wrestling with why the cross? And I think people constantly wrestle with it because if we all step back and we're honest with ourselves, we have to say one thing. The cross was a lot. The cross was a lot. We worship a Savior who died on a cross. And I know that none of us have ever seen a crucifixion like Christ was crucified, but the cross was a lot. Really, God, that's what had to happen? Why so much pain? Why so much bloodshed? Why so much violence? The reason we struggle with the atonement is that we don't actually like what it also says about us. Because on the other side of the cross, what we have to go is say is, was that really what was necessary? God, was that overboard? Couldn't have there been an easier way to deal with my sin? Like what it says about us is shocking because what it says about us is this is what was required. Think back to that first question. Jesus asked, what do you seek? What do you want? What do you, what would you have me do? If the disciples said, well, Jesus, I'm seeking peace. I'm seeking joy. I'm seeking hope. I'm seeking rest. I'm seeking a better life. I'm seeking the ability to lay my head on the pillow at night and, and, and just know that everything is going to work out all right. If his disciples said that and Jesus' response was immediately, okay, but that means that I have to die, how do you think they would have responded? Whoa, hold up, hold up, hold up. I just, that's taking a little far there, Jesus. Die? I just want to have my best life now. Die? I, I, I'm not so sure. If, I'm not that bad, right? We'd probably say that's a little extreme. But Christ knows it's not extreme. Christ knows that it's the only thing that will ultimately satisfy. Christ knows Romans 5 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. Okay, I have, I have enough time, so I'm going to launch into a little bit of an aside here. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, announcing our men's retreat and all the signups there. But our topic for the men's retreat is forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the heart of this passage. In order to forgive somebody, truly forgive somebody, there has to be two realities. And you can't shortchange these realities because if you shortchange these realities, forgiveness isn't possible. The first reality is there has to be an accurate and just accounting of the debt. Like you have to actually say, this is what you did to me. This is how much it costs me. This is how much I've wronged you or you've wronged me. That's the first thing. The second thing, so there has to be a full forgiveness of the debt. Think about the parable that we have of the forgiven 
debtors. I want to say sinners. First guy walks in. There's an accurate description. I'm doing this off the top of my head now. You owe me a gajillion dollars. That's basically how that reads. A debt that could never be paid. And this guy goes, I can't pay this. What am I to do? And what's the king do? Okay, you're forgiven. Then he goes to the other guy who owes him like 20 bucks and says, give me my 20 bucks. The guy goes, I, I can't pay it. Can I, next Tuesday? I can probably get 20 bucks. And he goes, no, you was, it was owed today. You owe me $20. I'm gonna cash you into prison. What happens to that gajillion dollars that wasn't paid? Who takes on that debt? The king. It was on his books. He was owed that money. It was, it was a legit debt. This has to be paid. And he goes, okay, I'll take that debt on. I'll carry that loss. You are forgiven. There's a full accounting of the wrong. It's an accurate accounting of the debt. This is what you have done. And there's full forgiveness. You see, if those two things, a full accounting of the, a full just and accurate accounting of the debt and a full forgiveness is not given, two things can happen. First, we like to placate and whitewash the offense. I didn't owe you a gajillion dollars. I owed you a hundred dollars. Will a hundred dollars cover this? And we can do this in one of two ways. We can either be the person who is the uh, debtor and don't actually want to have an accurate description of what we've done. Like, no, I didn't borrow that much money. I didn't offend you in that way. I haven't hurt you in this way. Or we're actually the person who is the, um, the guarantor of the debt and we don't actually want to say, actually, what you did was really hurt me in this way because we don't want to hurt somebody. We don't want to have a just accounting of the wrong. But guess what happens? That leads to bitterness. That leads to bitterness because the debtor or the, the guarantor of the debt is constantly saying, but you don't understand what you did to me. You don't realize fully what I have forgiven. It leads to bitterness because we always look at that person and we say, it, it, you don't get what I've forgiven. But then the second thing can happen. We don't fully forgive. And when we don't fully forgive, it doesn't lead towards bitterness. It leads towards shame, toxic shame. Because we constantly look at that person and we say, I'm still holding the record of wrong against you. You still got to pay me back in this way. The cross is the perfect picture of forgiveness. The reason we struggle with the cross is because what it declares to us and about us is something that we don't like. That what was required of our sin was a death. That's what required of sin. That's what our debt was. You sinned against me on God's record books, that equals a death. But what Christ does is he comes in and says, okay, I'll pay for that. I'll take that debt upon myself. I'll put that debt on my record books. I'll cover you. But then at the same time, it's the, the cross is the full weight, the full um, exposure of God's forgiveness because God says, okay, we're clear. We're good. You can move on. And we walk away being forgiven. Where God is not bitter towards us because the debt has been paid for in Christ. God is not shaming us because it's been paid for in Christ. 
When Christ takes on this mission to go to the cross, what he is taking on, this, this mission of allowing us the opportunity to be fully forgiven. When you sit here today and you've placed your faith in Christ, you are fully forgiven of a debt that was insurmountable, that was only possible through the cross. And yet Christ came and said, what are you seeking? You're seeking for that debt to be paid and I am willingly going to pay it. When you're sitting here today and you think of this, the sin, the misery, and the burdens in your own life and the garbage that you do, do you realize that the only person that's shaming you for that is you? Because God's not gonna shame you after Christ has paid for it. God's not gonna hold you under his thumb like we do because we stink at forgiving people. But God doesn't forgive us like we forgive other people. No, he forgives us fully and says, it's been paid for. I'm good. I'm good. You get to live in that glory. You get to live in that hope. You get to live in that rest. Christ can say, come all to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest because I'm going to take the full weight of your responsibilities and burden and sin upon myself and between you and God, you're gonna be good because I'm gonna take care of it. I don't think we live that way. I don't think we live in the joy of our forgiveness. Now, the reason we're gonna talk about that at Men's Retreat is because we as believers get to display that type of forgiveness to the world around us. Our community, now I'm just stealing my own thunder. This is why you should go. Our community is supposed to be known for this forgiveness because that world does not have this forgiveness. Our world has cancel culture and, uh, you know, the, the idea of critical race theory that no one can be forgiven and always, you know, under each other's thumbs. And yet the gospel declares to us and goes, we're forgiven and we live in that glory. And that should affect not only, first and foremost, our relationship with God, but secondarily, our relationship with each other. That after we've been forgiven, just this immense weight, an insurmountable weight of wrath. Why in the world would we hold each other accountable for those $20 innocent little things that we do towards each other? So details about men's retreat are coming out. Okay. As we turn our attention towards communion, This table proclaims our forgiveness. It proclaims the fact that we're not enough. That's that shame, fear that we're all trying to hide, right? We're not enough. I don't know what we're doing here. I fall, I'm weak. I, you know, we're all trying to come to Jesus and go, what do you seek? I'm trying to seek this, this feeling to go away. And yet what this table proclaims is that Christ was enough. What it proclaims is that no amount of hiding, hoping, or helping can make us enough. But we can come to Christ. We can run to him. We can run to the table and be reminded that our, our needs, our deepest needs that we don't even recognize have been satisfied in Christ. And that what he can offer to all that are seeking, think back at that question, is reconciliation with God. Let's pray we can take this table together. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that we can come to you. We don't have to fear you seeing who we truly are. We don't have to fear you seeing how weak we are. 
Because as the prophet declares, you're not going to break a bruised reed. You're not going to put out a smoldering wick. You're gentle with us. Even while we are your enemies, you're gentle with us. You love us more than we could ever imagine. Lord, I, I pray this morning, if there's anyone in this room that is far off from you, that's seeking, seeking for hope and peace and rest, is seeking for that reconciliation, Lord, allow your kindness to draw us to repentance. Lord, allow us to be a people that live in light of our forgiveness. I don't question it. I trust that everything that was required, was needed, was, was complete in you. And we're gonna live in light of that. We're gonna boldly live in light of that. We're gonna forgive when others say we shouldn't. We're gonna offer grace and hope to others that the world's gonna shut out. Lord, help us to just be transformed by your love. Lord, just be with us now as we take your table. As we do every week, Lord, allow us to always be overwhelmed by the grace that it declares to us. Just be with us now in your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.